Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. So every year, round about the beginning of October, shopping centres uh, like the one across the road and uh, many others around our nation start putting up their Christmas decorations. And usually by early November, you can hear Mariah Carey and Michael Bublé and Pentatonix like blaring out your favorite Christmas carols over the shopping center loudspeakers. Although I must admit, last year, I think it started like early September, right? Seems to be getting like earlier every single year. And the reason they do that is because they understand the power of anticipation. They know that if they can bombard you with the sights and sounds of Christmas, it will awaken in you a sense of anticipation and expectation for all that summary goodness that comes our way during the Christmas period. And if they can get you into the holiday mood like sooner rather than later, then they know that that's going to make you happy. And when you're happy, you spend money. And when you spend money, that makes them happy. That's the power of anticipation. Now, very often in life, our expectations are realized, but sometimes in life, they're not, because life takes a turn in an unexpected direction. But that, too, can be a very powerful and transformative experience. That's why very often in the world of filmmaking, uh, movie directors and screenwriters will often employ a storytelling device called foreshadowing. And what foreshadowing does is it creates a sense of expectation or anticipation that leads you in a particular direction. Sometimes that direction is toward the realization and the resolution of that expectation. But more often than not, in the case of movies, it's a redirection that leads you towards an unexpected plot twist that nobody sees coming. So let me take a moment to illustrate to try and explain what I'm saying. Just imagine this scene with me for a moment. There's a house, a large house with a big backyard, and it's located in the Rocky Mountains somewhere in the United States. And there's a handful of children, maybe three or four young children, playing in the backyard happily. You see the scene for about five or six seconds, and then suddenly the scene cuts to another scene of a grizzly bear walking through a forest. You see the bear for about five seconds, and then it cuts back to the children playing in the yard, and then back to the bear in the forest, and then back to the children playing in the yard. Now, instantly, what's happening in your mind is you're wondering, how are these two things connected? Because they seem somewhat juxtaposed. They seem to be representing two very different realities that could be worlds apart, but already an expectation and an anticipation is beginning to develop. So the scene cuts back to the children in the yard and then back to the bear in the forest and back to the children in the yard and then back to the bear in the forest. Only now you see the bear standing at the edge of the forest and the bear is looking out over the backyard at the children playing. And suddenly you realize this property backs onto the forest in which the bear has been walking. So not only now is there expectation and anticipation, but there is tension. And as soon as that happens, the scene cuts to something completely unrelated, like some man driving in peak hour traffic in the middle of New York City talking on his cell phone, right? And you're asking yourself, what's going to happen, right? There's an expectation that could potentially in the future of the movie be realized and resolved. The bear could come charging out of the forest and run across the lawn and attack the children, which is probably what you're expecting to happen. Or 
your expectation could be redirected in the direction of a plot twist that you just simply did not see coming. So maybe the bear does charge out of the forest and halfway across the lawn, just before he gets to the kids, the bear drops dead from a heart attack because it's been eating cocaine. <laughs> all right, cocaine bear, what a stupid idea for a movie, all right? I have no intention of seeing that movie and neither should you. But you get the idea, right? Foreshadowing that leads to expectation and a sense of anticipation that is either realized and resolved or redirected towards a plot twist that you just simply did not see coming. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, why on earth are you telling us all of this? And why is this important? Well, it's important because in the first three chapters of Luke's gospel, that is exactly what's going on. There is a foreshadowing taking place that's generating all sorts of expectation and anticipation that is not going to be realized or resolved, but is going to be redirected in the most surprising way toward a plot twist that absolutely nobody saw coming. Now, if you're joining us today for the first time, we're in week two of this new series called Investigating Jesus. And we're exploring the life and the ministry and the teaching and the claims of Jesus as they appear in just one of the historical records that we have in our New Testament scriptures called the Gospel of Luke. And at the heart of this series is a big and really important idea. And it's this, that the foundation of the Christian faith is not a blind acceptance of the claims of a religious text. It is far more substantial than that. Christian faith is a reasonable and offendable response to compelling evidence surrounding a game-changing historical event. And that historical event I'm referring to is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, if you are keen to investigate Christianity and to explore the, the, the Christian faith, which I reckon everybody should do seriously, then you have to start with the person of Jesus because Christianity rises and falls on the person of Jesus. Listen, you can ask all sorts of interesting questions about life and God and faith. You can ask about how the universe came into being or where human beings came from or what heaven might be like. But none of those questions are foundational or central to the Christian faith. Jesus is foundational and central to the Christian faith. And what happened to him and what happened through him are the defining issues when it comes to establishing the veracity and the validity of the Christian faith. And the fact of the matter is, and friends, it is simply a fact. The fact of the matter is that the first followers of Jesus, their faith was not based on a sacred text. It was based on an historical event. In other words, those first followers of Jesus did not believe in him because they read about him in a holy book. They followed him because they saw him rise from the dead. And they were so fully convinced and fully persuaded of what they had seen and experienced that they were willing to risk persecution and prosecution and rejection and even death. And so if you are going to explore Christian faith seriously, then the question you ultimately have to ask, and all of us should ask this question, is this. Are the gospel accounts 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and or John, accurate and reliable accounts of actual events. Because if the answer to that question is yes, that changes everything. And last week, Pastor D kicked us off with this idea, introducing us to this concept and doing a wonderful job of establishing the reliability and the credibility and the historicity of this New Testament record that we have. So given how high the stakes are around this question, we're exploring and investigating the claims of Christian faith concerning this person of Jesus, and we're doing it from the record of the gospel according to Luke. Now, for those of you who are new to the conversation and may not be aware of this, Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jewish medical doctor. He was highly educated, a super intelligent man, and he took it upon himself to correct or collect the ideas concerning the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus and to collate them into a record that could give people some sense of who Jesus was and what he had done. Uh, Luke was not part of the inner circle of Jesus, those initial first followers of Jesus. He ultimately became a follower of Jesus because of what he heard and read and saw and discovered, but he wasn't initially uh, in the inner circle. Now, Luke tells us right at the beginning of his gospel exactly what his intention is. So listen to what he says in the first three verses of Luke 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Not a few, not one or two. He says many. In other words, when he's writing this, this is a hot topic. Everyone's talking about it, and everyone's trying to collect and collate the information around the person of Jesus. He says, I've drawn up an account of these things just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses. In other words, Luke's saying, hey, I'm not getting this third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand. This is coming from the people who were there, who saw it, experienced, heard it, and from the servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. Right? Luke's saying, listen, I was thorough, I was rigorous, I took my time, I was precise, I was detailed. I carefully investigated everything from the very beginning. So I too have decided to write an orderly account, an accessible, chronological, biographical history of this person called Jesus. For you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In other words, Luke's saying, I want you to be sure of what you've heard. I want your mind to be put at rest. I want your heart to be reassured. I want you to have certainty that these things that you have heard are true. Now, before Luke tells us anything about the message and the ministry of Jesus, Luke tells us something incredibly important about what was going on before the arrival of Jesus and what happened around the arrival of Jesus. And so in the opening three chapters of his gospel, Luke introduces us to two very important ideas. And the first, I will just simply sum up with this heading, hearts full of expectation. Hearts full of expectation. You see, at the time of Jesus and at the time of this writing, the land that we know as Israel was under Roman rule. And the people of Israel were subject to the burden of Roman occupation. Now, if you know anything about the people of Israel and their story, 
you will know that they had a very long, painful, difficult history with their neighboring uh, uh, nations. So very often, down through the centuries, the people of Israel would find themselves um, overrun, harassed, oppressed, afflicted, sometimes carried off into exile and into slavery. And here they are, once again, as the people of God, having to suffer under the burden of the occupation of a foreign power. So the people were getting tired of it. And there was a longing in their hearts for freedom. And for centuries, the Old Testament Jewish prophets had been proclaiming and announcing and declaring that God was going to send a king. A king who would be a descendant of King David, who was the most revered king in all of Israel. And this king, like David, would liberate the people of Israel and lead them back into a time of peace and prosperity and independence, as it was in the time of David's rule. And so there was this heightened sense of expectation in Israel. Everyone was aware that the Messiah could arrive at any minute. And that's why Luke writes in chapter 3, verse 15, and he says the following. He says, the people were waiting expectantly. And they were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah, this promised king. The John that Luke is referring to here is John the Baptist, whom we're going to meet in just a moment. But the point is simply that there was this heightened sense of anticipation. Everyone was wondering, where is the Messiah and when is he coming? Now, many people had come and gone, claiming to be the Messiah, but they had failed to deliver on that promise of peace and prosperity and liberation. And yet the hope remained there. The people were still expectant. And so you can imagine when Jesus does eventually arrive on the scene and he starts preaching and, and pro prophesying and proclaiming and healing and performing miracles and challenging the Jewish religious establishment of the day, all of a sudden people began to speculate, is Jesus the one? Could he be the Messiah? Is it possible that this carpenter's son from Nazareth could be the future king of Israel? And so when this heightened sense of the people's expectation collided with the dramatic life and ministry of Jesus, there were fireworks. Now, interestingly, this belief or this conviction that Jesus could be the Messiah actually began to emerge long before his public ministry began. It actually began to emerge from the moment he was born. And so the second important thing that Luke wants to draw our attention to is what I would simply call voices full of validation. Voices full of validation. In the first three chapters of his gospel, Luke goes to great lengths to introduce us to a wide array of people whose voices are a validating and affirming confirmation of the Messiahship of Jesus. Only the important thing to note here is that these are not the voices of the political power base. These are not the voices of the religious elite. These are the voices of ordinary, everyday, common people just like you and just like me. These are not the official spokespersons of the Christian movement, right? This is not like uh, Donald Trump's press secretary, you know, releasing a, a news report to try and present our former president in a, in a wonderful light, okay? It's not LeBron James's sports agent issuing a, a press release on behalf of his client. These are not the official spokespersons of the Christian movement. These are people who have nothing to gain and everything to lose by being associated with this controversial figure of Jesus. So let me just draw your attention to a few of them. First of all, there are the shepherds 
who received the news of the arrival of Jesus on the night that he was born. So Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 8 to 12, he says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, as you would expect them to be. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. I mean, shepherds, right? You cannot get a more lowly, humble, normal group of people than shepherds. These are unskilled, uneducated day laborers. These are not the political elite or the religious elite. And yet it is to them that the Messiahship of Jesus is revealed. Then there's Simeon. Simeon was an elderly man who lived in Jerusalem. And when Jesus was just eight days old, his parents took him to the temple to be dedicated and to be circumcised as the law required. And so Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 25 to 32 about this encounter with Simeon. So he says, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, that's another way of saying he was waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the liberation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents of Jesus brought the child to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Hold on a second, Simeon, what are you talking about? I thought the Messiah was the king of the Jews. I thought he was the liberator of Israel. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Right, here's a simple old Jewish man who's been carrying this prophetic promise in his heart all of his life. And when Jesus, at eight days old, arrives at the temple to be dedicated and circumcised, Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes this is the Messiah. Again, he's an old man with no status, no power, no pedigree. And yet to him, the Messiahship of Jesus is confirmed. Then, of course, there was Anna. Anna was a widow and a prophetess. And Luke tells us about her in chapter 2, verse 36 to 38. He says there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84, right? That's like ancient in the first century. Apologies to those of you who are 84 or thereabouts, right? Not old by today's standards, but certainly in the first century, where the average age was 37, 84 is really old. She was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. 
right? You cannot get more vulnerable and invisible than an 84-year-old widow. But that is precisely the point. Friends, because what Luke is doing here is he's holding up these two juxtaposed realities. On the one hand, there's this expectation, the king is coming, the Messiah, the liberator, the Lord, the redeemer, the commander. But then we have a baby born in a manger in obscurity. And the only people who know about it are shepherds and geriatrics. And so you're wondering, how do these things connect? How do we resolve these? How do these two juxtaposed realities come together? What on earth is going on here? And friends, that is precisely what Luke wants to do. Because Luke is starting to tell us something about why Jesus came and for whom Jesus came. By highlighting who it was that Jesus came to first. And then lastly, fourthly, and perhaps the most powerful voice of affirmation comes from a very unlikely character called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, of course, is not a Bible story character. He's a figure of history. He not only appears in the biblical record of the New Testament, but he also appears in extra-biblical Jewish historical records like the works of Josephus. And Luke tells us about this strange figure called John who spent all of his time living out in the wilderness, eating wild honey and locusts, and dressing himself in camel's hair. So no doubt he probably smelt really interesting too. And Luke tells us about him in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Now just notice, just notice the historical detail that Luke gives us. Notice the precision, right, and the specificity. Luke is trying to tie redemption history to secular history so that there's no doubt about when these things took place. And if you wanted to evaluate or investigate Luke's record, you could just hold it up against an historical record from secular sources and you will see the details match. So listen to what he says, verse 106. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And John went in all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just note that phrase. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. Essentially, what Luke is telling us is that John's message is this. Listen, get ready, get ready, get ready. Something significant is about to happen because someone significant is about to arrive. And in verse 7 to 9 of Luke chapter 3, it says that John, having preached this message, draws large crowds. And the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. John says to them, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you know that you, you nest of snakes. That's pretty hectic, right? I mean, not the friendliest preacher we've ever met, is he? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say, 
we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the Bible says as John preaches these words, the people are cut to the heart and they're convicted. And they cry out and they say to him in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, what should we do? What should we do? Now, friends, listen carefully. This is so important because you need to notice what's happening here. John's ministry and John's message were a precursor to the ministry and the message of Jesus. In other words, John came to set the stage for Jesus. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. He came to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. And what John is essentially saying to the people is this. Listen, if you want to be right with God, you need to repent. Receive God's forgiveness for your sin. Be baptized. And then start living out your devotion to God. Now, the reason why that was so striking and so confronting and why the Jewish religious leaders were so upset with John that they eventually had him killed was because the Jews already had a system of offering and sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, if you wanted your sins forgiven, you had to go to the temple and you had to pay money and you had to buy a lamb or a, or a, a dove or a cow. And usually you have to pay exorbitant amounts. And then you have to offer that sacrifice in a complex system of offering in order to receive forgiveness for your sin. And here's John, this radical revolutionary prophet who's out in the wilderness saying, forget about it. Forget about the temple. Forget about the system of, of offering and sacrifice. If you want to be right with God, repent. Turn your heart to God. Receive God's forgiveness for your sin. Be baptized and then start living out your devotion to God. And so as the people are cut to the heart by this message, they say to John, John, what should we do? In other words, John, what are the fruits of repentance that you are talking about? And so John goes on in verse 11 of Luke 3 to say, anyone who has two shirts should share the one with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. In other words, John's saying, you know what these fruits of repentance are? Practice generosity and show hospitality and extend kindness to strangers and be generous to people who are in need. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, teacher, what should we do? And John said, don't collect any more than you are required to. In other words, no more exploitation, no more extortion, only what is right, only what is fair. Then some soldiers came to him, right? These are Gentile Roman soldiers, right? And they come to him and they say, what, what should we do? And isn't it interesting that John doesn't say to them, hey, no, 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 you, you Gentile soldiers, you, this is for the Jews only. You go and do what Gentiles do. This is not for you. No, he doesn't say that. Because this message is for Jew and Gentile alike. This is for everyone. He says to them, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. No more corruption. 
No more exploitation. And be content with your pay. <laughs> Maybe that's a prophetic word to someone this morning. And Luke goes on to say in verse 15 to 16, he says, The people were waiting expectantly and wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah. But John answered them and he said, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, John's message is clear. I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Liberator. I'm not the Redeemer. But He is about to arrive. And when He does, following this King is going to be all about living out your devotion to God in deeply personal and intensely practical ways. And this is the heart of John's message in a nutshell, right? Following Jesus will be about living out your devotion to God in deeply personal and intensely practical ways. Following this King Jesus is not just going to be about thinking right thoughts about Him. It's not going to just be about believing right propositional truths about Him. Following this King Jesus is going to be about producing the fruits of repentance. It's going to be about living out your devotion to God in ways that are deeply personal and intensely practical. And friends, the best question any of us can ask in light of that truth is what should we do? God, what do you want me to do? Not just what do you want me to think or what do you want me to believe. God, what do you want me to do? What are the deeply personal and intensely practical changes to my life that following Jesus requires of me? And next time we get together, we're going to continue our series and pick up where we left off today. And we're going to meet this King Jesus. So make sure that you are here when we do. But all through the course of this week, I want to encourage you to ask this question. What are the deeply personal and intensely practical changes to my life that following Jesus requires of me? Amen. Bow your heads with me as we pray together. Father, this morning we want to thank you so much for the gift of your word. Thank you for the grace and the truth that comes to us through it. And thank you, Father, that everything in this record that we are exploring and investigating together points us and leads us ultimately to your Son, Jesus. We pray, God, that you will continue to open the eyes of our heart and our understanding so that we can see Him and know Him truly for who He is. And we pray, God, that you will give us the courage to answer that question. What should we do? So that in and through our lives, all may know that you are good and you are God. We ask it in the precious, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. God bless you, everybody. Over to Pastor D. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.